All right, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Did I say Matthew? All right, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. You guys are on the ball. You caught me. All right, Mark chapter 11, verse 27 to chapter 12, verse 12. All right, so Mark chapter 11, verse 27 to 12, 12. And, uh, oh, yes, if you would, why don't you please stand for the reading of God's word? Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you, once, uh, ask you one question, answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still another, a beloved son. And finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Will he come and destroy the tenants and give the... He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> Today we're going to be talking about this story, and, and if, you, if you summarize the whole thing, if you catch nothing else of what I say today, take this away. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we pick up the story with Jesus and disciples. They're coming again to the, to the city of Jerusalem. And day one, if you remember, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a colt, on a donkey. Day two, Jesus entered the temple and he drove people out of it and he, he cursed a fig tree, if you remember. We looked at that last week. Day three, the disciples are coming back and they see the fig tree withered to its roots. And Jesus reveals and the prophetic curse on the fig tree and challenges the disciples to faith and prayer and forgiveness. And then today, in this case, they, they, they leave that and they're coming to the temple and this is where we pick up the narrative today in our story. So as he was walking in the temple, he and his disciples are surrounded by the chief priests, the scribes, 
and the elders, the religious elite, or the big term is the Sanhedrin, okay? And this is our first of four encounters that Mark's going to record between Jesus and the religious political leaders of the temple. So in our passage today, which is still connected with the temple and the fig tree incident that we saw last week, they question him about his authority, okay? And then um, in the second encounter, they question Jesus about taxes. And in the third encounter, they question Jesus about the resurrection, And then in the fourth encounter, a scribe questions Jesus about the law and the commandments of God. And each of these confrontations uh, raises the level of frustration and anger that the religious leaders have against Jesus. So there's four of them. We're looking at uh, the rest of them next week. So the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they're quite a group. These four encounters were planned and they were staged. And they wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to intimidate him. They wanted to trip him up. They wanted to bully him. They wanted to silence and discredit him. They wanted to censor what he was saying to the people. So this was a political and economic posturing, a one-upping. These four encounters, um, they, so, sorry, they had, these, these folks, these, these Sanhedrin, they had authority derived from their lineage or from their position, or from their affluence, their their economic status. And Jesus, in their eyes, he had none of that. Though ironically, he is from the line of David, he has God's authority as his son, and, and because he is God, he owns everything. But in their eyes, they didn't see that. But they wanted to belittle him in front of the crowd so that they could continue, from what we learned last week, to mistreat the people and rob them of their wealth. So for them, Jesus had to be stopped. He had to be silenced. So they asked him a question to hopefully put it all to rest. And that's where we come in verse 27 of chapter 11. And we see them coming to him and they ask him, By what authority are you doing these things? You see, the religious elites who were asking the questions were the ones who had the authority to determine what went on in the temple and what didn't go on in the temple. They were the authorities, and Jesus was not authorized by any worldly standard to do what he was doing. And what was he doing? Well, he was doing things like cursing fig trees and healing people and casting out demons and driving uh, those who sold and those who bought merchandise out of the temple. And he was overturning tables and money changers, and he was was teaching from Isaiah and Jeremiah, like we saw last week, and he was applying uh, these passages to the leaders of the temple and to the, the broken system that they perpetuated. So he was, he was making quite a ruckus. And Jesus hadn't gotten permission by anybody, any one of them, to do what he was doing. Kind of like getting a, you know, a permit to go do what you want to do, right? Well, these leaders wanted to get Jesus in trouble. He didn't have a proper permit. Demonstrate to the crowds that he wasn't part of the religious crowd. He was a rogue. And if Jesus said that he received his authority from God, then they would most likely mock him and paint him out to be some sort of a lunatic. So Jesus was in a pickle. If he says God, he'll be discredited. If he says man, then, they would be, then he would be lying because no one gave him permission to do what he was doing. So this was a test. In my opinion, it was a tough one. Jesus was in a tough spot. Would Jesus stick to his teachings that authority comes through suffering? Or would he adopt the way of the world? Authority comes through force and deception. And and would he name drop? Would he lie? Would Would he do something unscrupulous or forceful? What would Jesus do? 
So we get to the response in verse 31. Well, verse 29. I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So Jesus does not answer their question. He turns the question back on them and puts them in the very same pickle that he was in. Instead, he asks a question promising them to answer their question if they answer his. Was the baptism of John from heaven? And now they're up against a dilemma, the same dilemma that Jesus was in. And he says, answer me. And I love this because Jesus' authority is revealed loud and clear. He leaves no room for them to counter again. Jesus demands an answer. And right there, right here in this question, Jesus' divine authority shines right through it all. The crowds, the instigators, the rabble-rousers, the politicians, the lawyers think they have the upper hand and that they will put Jesus in his place through intimidation and coercion and fear, and Jesus rises above it. He demonstrates true authority, true poise, calmness and wisdom and prudence, and he asks them a question. And they discussed two ways that they could respond. And I'll give these rabble-rousers some credit. They knew that they were cornered and they didn't have a way out. It's like two rams butting heads, right? Antlers entwined, pushing against one another. Neither's going to give ground, right? I just see this as this fight between these two. And, and we see the incredible strength and character and courage and boldness of Jesus who stood alone, just one against a crowd. They were louder. They had numbers. They had political position. They had wealth. They had Roman rulers in their pockets. They had networks. They controlled the news and the media. They ruled the people. And Jesus was alone. I mean, his disciples were there, but they weren't, they weren't doing much. <clears throat> and we see Jesus standing alone in front of all of his accusers. And they said, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe? Our lack of listening to God's word, our lack of repentance, our lack of faith, and our lack of obedience will be exposed for what it is. We will lose face. If we say, from man, and then I love how Mark writes, he cuts off the thought. He doesn't exactly give us the response that they think the people will give them, right? He just, he wants us to fill in the blank. If, if, If we say from man... The people will be angry. They will accuse us. They will reject us. They will not vote for us. They could riot. They could leave the temple. They could leave the church. How many times do people in leadership do things out of fear of the people? You know, leaders want to be accepted. But true authority does not neglect to lead simply because some people will not like it. Leaders are okay with disappointing people. And Jesus revealed their spineless and ungodly leadership. And Jesus cornered them. If they would have agreed that John was a prophet, then they would have been admitting that John's authority came from God, right? And if they had admitted that John's authority came from God, and since John had prophesied that Jesus was greater and coming after him, 
then the only logical conclusion would be for them to admit that Jesus received his authority from God as well. In answering Jesus' question, they would have answered their own question. Jesus received his authority from God. They would never in a million years want to admit this. They wouldn't want to go down that road. To admit that Jesus had authority from God? No way. It would dismantle their entire evil temple system and they would have to stop trying to destroy him because he was from God. It would mean that Jesus was right. So they were at a crossroads. In admitting that Jesus was right and that he was from God, they would be admitting that his message was true. And his message was repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. So in this, Jesus is graciously offering them a chance to enter his kingdom. To admit for themselves where his authority was derived from. This was a defining moment. <clears throat> because of all the people, the people held that John was a prophet. So they very easily could have gone down this road. Just think of how this could have gone. If the religious leaders had humbly served the people by admitting that what was clearly true, that John and Jesus were who they said they were, God's appointed forerunner to the Messiah and the Messiah, if they had repented and believed and received forgiveness, they would have led the people into a spiritual revival. But they could not bring themselves to humbly admit that they were wrong. They could not be last. They refused to serve. They refused to be slaves of all. And the result is that the first shall be last, as Jesus said. So they come, they, they answer, and they say, we don't know. What a cop-out. What a cop-out. We don't know? Really? It's infuriating. Instead of leading the people in truth and into a relationship with God... They chose to hold on to their wealth and their status, their comfort and their power. And they said, we don't know. So Jesus answered them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you disregard the chapter break, because remember Mark didn't write the chapters in there, this was all just one continuous account, then Jesus immediately goes back to his standard operating procedure, his M.O., he began to speak to them in parables again. So the following parable is not a disconnected parable. Jesus was speaking to the people and to the corrupt religious leaders in such a way as to finish off this dispute, to kind of put them in their place by discreetly condemning the leaders. Let's look at the parable in 12, 1 to 12. We just read it. So Jesus sets the stage for the parable. All right, he sets the stage. He says, a man planted a vineyard and put a, a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Okay? It's, it's similar to uh, some Old Testament metaphors and, and poetic prophecy. Jesus was setting the stage in, in terms that the people, the religious leaders, and the, the crowds would understand. For instance, it's similar to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, which says this. It says, let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. 
My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. And he built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Well, that sounds very similar to what Jesus is doing. So Jesus is casting this, this parable in the mindset of what the people knew. Okay? And he says that the and then, and then he says he leased out the land to tenants. And the leasing out of land to tenants was a common practice in the time of Jesus. Common enough, at least, that all who heard it would easily identify with the parable. So Jesus was speaking their language. He got their attention. He he knew something, uh, but they all knew something that that we don't readily know. They knew what each thing represented in the parable. So in this parable, we need to know what the various things represent so that we can interpret it correctly. So right now we're going to look through. So the owner is God. Okay, so the owner is God. The vineyard is God's people. The vineyard is is picturing God's people. The tenants, the tenants that he talks about, the evil tenants, are Israel's religious and political leaders. Okay, the tenants are, 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 are Israel's religious and political leaders. The servants whom the owner sends are the prophets. And the beloved son is, you guessed it, Jesus. So it says, the owner, God, sent servants, the prophets, to gather some of the fruit. And this was just how it was done back then. The owner would send to get his produce and, and, and maybe get a shipment of produce so that he could consume it or he could sell it to make a profit. It was his to do so with, and so he was asking the tenants, the ones that worked for him, to send him the produce. Either way, it was his. And the tenants, Israel's leaders, mistreat the various servants, the prophets, of the owner. So Jesus was, in a very witty way, summarizing a bunch of Old Testament passages and combining them into a parable, and he was recounting Israel's history in relation to God's people, or the the leaders, in relation to the prophets that he would send them. So listen to this. He said, one servant they beat and sent home empty-handed. You can look at, you don't have to, I'm going to read it, but 2 Chronicles 36, 15 and 16 says this. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets. That was 2 Chronicles 36, 15. And then he says, one servant they struck on the head and treated shamefully. You think of Jeremiah chapter 37, verse 15. And the officials were enraged at Jeremiah, and they beat him and imprisoned him. And in chapter 38, verse 6 of Jeremiah, so they took Jeremiah and cast him into a cistern, letting Jeremiah down by ropes, and there was no water in the cistern, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. Talk about being shamefully treated and beat. And then one servant they killed, Jesus says. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26, says this, uh, got their, the Israelites are talking through their history, all right? So they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And then it says, others they either beat or killed, Jesus says in this parable. And I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. So Jesus is describing Israel's history here in relation to the prophets that God sent them. Not too good of a track record. 
And the owner had one more. The owner had one other, a beloved son. They will respect him, the owner thought. And in the parable, we see that the wicked tenants, like the religious and political leaders, did not conform to any set of ethics or morality. They want the land for themselves, and they're going to steal it, and they're going to do whatever they can to take it. They also don't hold any empathy for the owner. They don't care that they are killing the owner's son, his beloved son. And they don't heed any warning. They will go to any extreme to get their way. Now it says that, you know, the son is important. It says that it was his, he was his beloved son. He held the rights to the property. He was the rightful heir. The son carried the authority of the father. The son was beloved by the father. So the father sending his son was an act of love and sacrifice. He was giving the wicked tenants another chance and appealing to their inner integrity. Just like Jesus had done with the question he asked the religious leaders a moment before. He was appealing to their inner integrity. Just admit who I am. And the son is Jesus in this story. Because Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the, he, he holds the authority of the Father. He's beloved by the Father. His coming was an act of love and sacrifice and a second chance for all wicked people. It says, beloved son. This is a really important that it's mentioned in this parable. In Mark's gospel, there are two other references to beloved son, and, and they're both when God speaks from heaven over Jesus. One when Jesus was baptized in chapter 1, and then one in his transfiguration in chapter 9. And we, when we looked at those accounts, we linked God's declaration that Jesus was his beloved son to Psalm chapter 2. It's a messianic psalm, well known by the religious leaders, the scribes and the priests of Jesus' day, in Psalm 2, God calls the anointed one, the Messiah, his son, his beloved. The religious leaders of the day, they knew this psalm by heart. And what is particularly striking about this psalm is that it is a warning to anyone who would oppose God's Messiah that they would perish or die. So we're going to read Psalm chapter 2 in its entirety. I just want you to hear some of the, the themes that are going to be showing up in this parable. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And that word anointed means Messiah, the one to come. The anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them with his, in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the, of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, 
Psalm 2, as we read it, think, we, we're thinking of it in light of Jesus' parable of the wicked tenants and in light of Jesus cleansing the temple. So, in verses 1 to 3, the rulers plot. The rulers plot together, just like the tenants were plotting. And just like the religious rulers surrounding Jesus were plotting to take him down. And they were plotting against the Lord and against his anointed. It's all coming together. Notice the wicked rulers set themselves against the Lord's anointed. These wicked rulers say, let us cast off their cords. Let us be free from the Lord and from his Messiah. They don't want any authority over them. And Jesus is describing the tenants in the same type of language, in language similar to Psalm 2. Let's kill the beloved son and the inheritance will be ours. Get rid of authority. The land will be ours. And in the parable, Jesus is connecting the tenants with the wicked religious leaders that are right in front of him. And Jesus is the Messiah, the one whom they were against. Mark wants his readers, us, to see the psalm as being fulfilled in Jesus, proving that he was the anointed one, the Messiah of God. And in verses 4 through 8 of Psalm 2, there's a couple phrases. I will tell the decree. What is the decree from the king, from God who sits in heaven and laughs at those who are in opposition to him? I have set my king in Zion. God would not allow the rulers to continue. God would establish his own king. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That king would be God's son. I will make the nations your possession. God will set up his ruler and establish his kingdom. It will be a com kingdom comprised of all nations and the ends of the earth. And then in, in verse 9 to 12 of chapter 2 in Psalms, there's a warning. And the warning is this. Be wise. Unfortunately, wicked rulers are, as a rule of thumb, not very wise. They are wily, they are deceptive, they are violent, but they are usually not wise. They do not see the destruction that is coming in store for them if they continue down the road they're going on. So he says, be wise. He says, serve the Lord with fear. Don't fear the people. Fear the one whom you should fear, the Lord. He says, kiss the Son. In essence, it's honor the Son. Receive the Son. Accept the Son. Believe in the Son. Lest you perish along the way. Remember blind Bartimaeus sat alongside the way? Unless he received Jesus, unless he came and, and received Jesus, that he would, he would perish along the way. The idea is to get in the way, to be behind Jesus and follow Jesus on the way. He says, you will, you will perish along the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And the meaning of refuge right there is to flee to for protection, to put trust in. Blessed are all who put trust in him. And there it is. It's the gospel message way back in the Old Testament. You have to make a choice. Either you continue in your own way and you perish, or you repent from following your own ways and you put your trust in the Messiah, God's Son, and you will be blessed. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The gospel doesn't change. It never has changed. Repent and believe in the Son, Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And Psalm 2 proves that to us. If you haven't believed in Jesus yet, be warned. If you continue in unbelief, you will perish along the way in everlasting judgment. 
The Bible clearly teaches this. But if you repent and believe in Jesus, you will receive forgiveness and eternal life in his name. Don't be like the wicked tenants, like the wicked religious leaders, who do not heed the warning. Instead of believing or receiving the Son, they say, this is the heir, let's kill him. Let's have our own way. And they killed him. And yet again, we see, we're now back in Mark chapter 12, we see that Jesus foretells his own death in this parable situation here. The suffering of the Messiah is rejection and death. And they threw him out of the vineyard. The word throw means to expel or to cast away. They had no regard for who he was as a person. They treated him like garbage and threw him out of the vineyard. You know, I've heard a lot lately that we are seeing unprecedented violence and, and um, hatred and murder going on in our society. And I agree that the anger and the violence and the rioting and the destruction and burning are nothing like I've ever seen in my lifetime. But it's not something new. This is the world that Jesus came into. This is the violence and the anger and the hatred that God Almighty stepped into. It wasn't safe for Jesus. In fact, safety wasn't a value of Jesus. Jesus did not make his decisions or do what he did based on safety. Or he never would have come down to earth in the first place. Hear me on this. Safety is not our main concern in life. Our main concern is following Jesus no matter what, which has inherent risk, in spite of the risk. And why was Jesus unconcerned with his safety? Because he entrusted himself, body, soul, and spirit, to God. And because God is in control, he can take the violence and the hatred and the sin and the abuse and the evil and transform it into something marvelous. Resurrection. Resurrection. We'll see that in a second. So Jesus asked the question, what will the owner do? Knowing all this, what's the owner going to do? And remember, the owner is God. It's the question of the day. And the nice thing about a parable, like the kind that Jesus uses here, is that anyone with half a brain would come to the same conclusion. Well, you kill those nasty jerks, and you get new people to run your vineyard, right? That's, we all have that inside of us. Why do we come to that conclusion? Because the story appeals to our inner sense of justice, right? It's a story about everyday life, and in real life, this is just how you deal with people like this. So up to this point, Jesus has his listeners in agreement with him and tracking with him. But they don't yet know that he's aiming this whole story at them. And I want to piece together the three gospel accounts of this story because I think that um, they seem to be a little bit different, but I hope to shed some light on what may have happened because I think it's really profound. So Matthew's version of this gospel or of this account has an interesting twist. The religious leaders answer this question of Jesus, the what will the owner do? And they say, he will put those wretches to miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Those are some pretty harsh words. Wretches to miserable death. That's what we would like to see that, don't we? In our flesh, that's what we want. There's that inner sense of justice, right? 
I would suggest that the religious leaders were caught up in the parable at this point. Sometimes when we're listening to a speaker and he asks a rhetorical question or a question which the answer is really obvious, we'll say it out loud, right? So, so they'll say it out loud and then and the, the, the teacher will repeat it to both emphasize it and to, to, to make sure that it comes loud and clear, right? So for us speakers, it means that you're listening when you answer that way. All right? it, it hammers the point home, too, because you're answering, you're in the story, and it validates the argument and the conclusion. So the religious leaders were listening. They unknowingly passed judgment on themselves. And then Luke's version is slightly different from the other two. It follows closer to Mark's recording with one added interesting feature. Listen to this. It says, it says this, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? And then he quotes the Old Testament passage that we'll look at in a minute. So one thing the gospel writers don't have the luxury of conveying to us is the time frame in which this happens. I'm sure because Jesus is God, and he's all-knowing, that he uses dramatic pauses to his benefit, okay? So in this case, if we piece together Matthew, Mark, and Luke, here's how I think the scenario may have gone. So Jesus asked the question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And the religious leaders answer real quickly, he will put those wretches to miserable death and let out the vineyard to others who will give the fruits in their season. And Jesus confirms their conclusion by repeating, he will come, destroy those tenants, and give the vineyard to others. Long pause as Jesus looks directly at each of the religious leaders who have surrounded them. And he waits. Oh, he means us. God would remove the tenants, meaning us. Surely not, according to Luke. The KJV translates the response as, God forbid. The Net Bible translates it as, may this never happen. My own translation would be, no way he wouldn't dare. Now they're putting two and two together. No way. And they're getting angry. Now back to Mark's gospel. It says he will come. The owner will come. Notice the actors in this parable are the owner, God, and the tenants, the religious leaders. God comes to enact vengeance and justice upon the religious leaders. He will destroy the tenants. Notice he doesn't destroy the vineyard. His beef is against the leaders, not against the general population. And it says he will give the vineyard to others. This means that God will establish other tenants to care for the vineyard of God's people. To what others? In this context, Jesus is talking about leaders of his people, the religious leaders. So God will give the vineyard to other leaders. Most likely, Jesus is referring to the apostles and those who would be leaders of the church down the road. And I'll come back to that in a little bit. And Jesus says, have you not read the scripture? And now he's really making them angry. He's, he's throwing fuel on the fire. Of course they have read it. They most likely have memorized it. They are teachers of the law, they're lawyers, they're scribes who copy God's word for a living every day. Of course they had read the scriptures. And Jesus was purposely throwing fuel on the fire. He was accusing them of reading and knowing God's word, but not allowing it to change their lives. They knew God's word, but they did not live it. Their hearts were like the bad soil that Jesus talked about chapters before. 
when he said, Others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, and get this, deceitfulness of riches, desire for other things, enter in and choke the word and prove it unfruitful. Have you not read the scriptures? And this encounter is directly connected to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, his cursing the fig tree, and his cleansing the temple. So let me explain. This is an inflammatory question. Here's why. It's a quote from an extremely well-known psalm in the Old Testament. It's accusatory and aimed at the religious leaders, and it's a pronouncement of the fate of the religious leaders. So the psalm is extremely well-known. It's a portion of Psalm 118, verse 22 and 23. Incidentally, it's the very same psalm that was chanted at Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm describing the salvation of the Lord. It is chanted and sung for almost every pilgrim that would make their way into Jerusalem to worship at the temple for decades and decades. They had not only read it, they had memorized it and sang it for over and over again for decades. And the crowds had sung it when Jesus arrived two days earlier. So this quote is also accusatory and aimed at the religious leaders. I'm going to read Psalm chapter 118. I'm going to read Psalm 118, 21 to 26 here. It says this, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? That was from his entry into Jerusalem. The psalmist is saying, you have answered me and have become my salvation. The psalmist is speaking to the Lord. You, the stone that the builders rejected, have become the head of the corner. The psalmist is speaking to the Lord. The Lord was rejected and became the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing. Now wait, the Lord's doing? I thought the religious leaders were the ones who rejected and killed Jesus. Yes, but part, it was all part of God's plan. God orchestrated what was meant for evil and made it into good. It was his doing. And it is marvelous. It is wonderful in our eyes. The religious leaders rejected and killed Jesus. But Jesus rose from the dead to become the head of the corner. The cornerstone of a new spiritual temple that would take the place of the physical temple that would be destroyed in AD 70. We talked about that last week. We know that this is the interpretation because Peter had a defense before uh, before the Sanhedrin after he had healed a crippled man in Acts chapter 4 verse 11. In Acts chapter 4 verse 11, Jesus, or Peter says this. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the religious leaders, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So Jesus is the cornerstone of a temple. And what is the spiritual temple that he is talking about? It's us. It's the church. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 22 says, You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And we've been reading about the apostles and prophets all along. You were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
That's you. That's us. We are the temple. Jesus came to destroy the evil works of the devil, get rid of the wicked, mountainous kingdoms of hypocritically religious men and cast them into the sea. And in its place, Jesus would establish the kingdom of God in righteousness and justice and peace forever. So this quote pronounces the fate of the religious leaders. It is the Lord who saves. It is the Lord who is praised and blessed. And the religious leaders are destroyed and the Messiah is established forever. Remember when Jesus said that we should pray to remove mountains? We looked at that last week. I want you to look at something really cool. Some of you are familiar with Daniel. Maybe some of you aren't. But if you want to turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 31 to 35. There's a dream that the king has. King Nebuchadnezzar has his dream and he doesn't know what it's about. So he asked Daniel to come and interpret it. And Daniel says in verse 31 of chapter 2 in Daniel... You saw, king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of clay and partly of iron. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And if you skip down to verse 44, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw, the stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Mountains, stones, cornerstones, temples. This isn't just, this is all coming together in the person of Jesus. The stone became a mountain, a kingdom that would be, never be destroyed, ruled by Jesus, and shepherded by the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors, teachers. Ephesians 4.11 says, He gave the apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, the church, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So this is what it's all about. A new kingdom with a righteous and eternal king where all those who believe in Jesus become living stones in the temple of God. A temple where all nations can come and hear the truth and worship and pray to the God who saves. So like the wicked tenants, even though these backstabbing, conniving, riotous, evil, greedy, arrogant, abusive, violent, religious and political leaders did everything they could to stop and destroy Jesus, to reject the cornerstone, to kill the beloved son, they would not prevail. In the end, God wins. In the end, God wins. Jesus is resurrected and the wicked lose. The vineyard is given to other tenants. Jesus is the cornerstone. God is our salvation. We are the temple of God. 
Jesus' kingdom and reign is eternal and righteous. This is our hope. Our salvation comes from the Lord. It's not from a government. It's not from a politician. It is not from any organization. It's from the Lord. This is a message for today. And they sought to arrest him, but were fearful of the people. Classic politicians. Classic politicians. Classic us when we operate in the flesh. We know what's right. We know what to do. But we don't do it because we're afraid of people. In Psalm 118, the same psalm we looked at, speaks to this true. The Lord is on my side. He's my salvation. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If this is our hope, what does it matter what men do to us? The religious leaders, like the rich young ruler earlier on, wanted their power and their wealth. They did not want God's provision for them in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, standing in front of them. They let the fear of the people push them away from receiving the gift of salvation. And it says that they perceived that he told the parable against them. I wonder what tipped them off. Jesus looking directly at them and saying, Have you never read? Yeah, he was saying this against them. And Jesus was rubbing them the wrong way. He was, sparks were beginning to fly. Tempers were beginning to rise. Frustration was beginning to mount. And a few more days, and it's all going to boil over. We're on, I believe, Wednesday in the Passion Week here. A few days later, it's all going to change. And I'm going to leave you with this. This was a lot of heady knowledge, but I'm going to leave you with this. If you have not received Jesus... Don't be like the wicked tenants. Accept the fact that Jesus is the beloved Son of God, the Messiah, God incarnate, foretold through all of Scripture and fulfilled in His coming. Believe that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection were accomplished for you. Trust that God's plan for this world will indeed come to fruition, that Jesus will reign in God's kingdom forever and ever. And we have the privilege and the grace to enter into that glorious kingdom by grace through faith. That's all it takes. Just believe. Repent that you were on the wrong road and believe in the way of Jesus. And if you have believed, take heart from this story. May this story encourage you and embolden you to walk the way of Jesus. In the end, he wins. You have nothing to worry about. If you are being opposed or persecuted or confronted or mocked or ridiculed or cornered, remember, so was Jesus. This is the norm for those who follow Jesus Christ as their Lord. It is an honor to suffer reproach for his name. But notice how Jesus handled the opposition. He extended grace and forgiveness, leaving their fate in the hands of God. My caution and my encouragement is this. If you are opposed or suffer mocking or ridicule or persecution, allow this to be true of you for the sake of Jesus Christ, not for the sake of some worldly cause or worldly leader or worldly kingdom. Remember who your leader is. It's Jesus. Listen to this. This is, a lot, this is the passage I'm going to leave you with. 1 Peter 4, 12-16. Beloved. I love how God calls His Son beloved. And he calls all of us his beloved. Beloved, do not be surprised 
at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, as a meddler. Yet if anyone who suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is so timely. Week after week, we come to the Gospel of Mark and we just see the truth speak into the situation that we're living in. Thank you that we can trust that you have established a kingdom and that Jesus is a, right, a righteous and holy and just king who reigns in glory and in peace. Thank you that no matter what happens in this life, when we perish, we get to be with him and with you in heaven. This is our glorious hope. Resurrection after all of this mess. Help us to have courage like Jesus and to follow him in the way that he walked. And may this be our hope as we go into this week that we have a future and it is secure in the hands of Almighty God. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Why don't you stand for the benediction? Encourage you to grab coffee on your way out. Don't forget your tithes and offerings in the boxes by the door as you leave. We appreciate that. And I'll receive this benediction from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Thank you. You are dismissed. Have a great week.